Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome back to Series 7 of Helpful Social Work. I'm Jerry, And I'm Jo. In this series, we've been going back to some of the central elements of social work practice, and we've been thinking about how we bring our whole self into the practice of social work. In each podcast, we've looked at an element of our physical practice, and we've explored what goes into that area. The podcasts have been loosely based on our human senses. So, so far, we've talked about listening and speaking, observation, touch, and taste and smell. And also, just to say, last month we talked about neurodiversity and we did say then that we were just dipping into the topic and um, we thought that it would be really great to signpost you to somewhere to hear from lived experience. So Florence Smith has put out a series of conversations with neurodivergent social workers and you can find these on the website, the Neurodivergent Social Worker, which is ndsocialworker.com wixsite.com. The site also provides further resources and reading. And in addition to that, Baswa has also just released a podcast episode on neurodiversity on their Let's Talk Social Work podcast. I've just been getting into those podcasts, actually, Jerry, and they're really great. I so enjoy them. Um, it's called Different Ways of Thinking, and it has Florence Smith and Deb Solomon as guests. So if you want to really dive in, do a deep dive into that topic of neurodiversity, um, there's some really great resources. And this is our last podcast of Series 7, apart from the review of the year. Uh, we're going to do the review of the year in March, and that will cover from last April through to this March. Mm-hmm. Um We've done a slightly shorter series this year because of the various things going on. We didn't get Series 7 going until um, September. But we are really excited to say that we have now passed 150,000 downloads. And around, I know, that's amazing. I know, it's cool, isn't it? And half of yeah. those were in the UK and the rest around the world. So, yeah, from, a, from around 120 episodes, that's well over 1,000 listens an episode. Thank um, you, guys. And when we started, we, were, we, we said we'd be really excited if more than... 50 people listen to an episode because that's yeah. more than you could get in a room. Yeah. Uh, and we don't think we really expected to keep going for seven years. No. Um, and again, at the beginning, you know, there weren't anything like as many social work podcasts out, but there are now, like I said, you talked about Baswell, Let's Talk Social Work. There's there's lots of others. Um, and actually, Baswell has just done a roundup in professional social work magazine of some of the podcasts that are out there, which included us, which is really nice. It is nice. Uh, so next season... Season eight, that sounds very American, doesn't it? Um, we're going to be looking at sustainable social work uh, in terms of how we sustain ourselves as social workers. Mm. So how we work in, in a way that is likely to, to keep to be able to keep going. And I think it'd yeah. be great to continue to have guests to talk about what helpful social work means to them. I've loved the guest. I've loved the guest slots we've done. People are so interesting and you know when you have conversations with them they just spark things in you all the time don't they and that's that's one of the great privileges of um being able to put aside the time to have these conversations and I'm really pleased we're doing sustainable social work because I mean you know maybe all times 
uh, are tough, uh, but um, it seems to me that this is really timely for social work for us to be thinking about, you know, how to sustain ourselves and nurture ourselves and, you know, stay really strong in our profession. Yeah, I agree. So this episode, Jerry, though, that we're doing right now is about doing nothing, which is a slightly odd idea, but it's about how we use ourselves to be attuned and to notice and to respond. The whole series has been about that. And sometimes we need to be attuned to the idea of not doing anything one of the things about social work that I notice, um, particularly when people come into the room, is is that busyness is a real hallmark of of um, social work. You know, where overactivity is always something we're discussing and doing. Um, and one of the things that I try to do when I get a group of people with me is to slow them right down to get them just to stop. And so this idea is about times when we need to stop and attend in a, in a kind of still way, I guess. So, so let's think about definitions. Let's dig into this. Nothing means no thing, not anything, something that has no existence. So doing nothing is an odd phrase because the doing implies action, but the nothing implies no action. So, yeah, it's the action of not acting. So when we think about this in social work, this is a deliberate, conscious choice to not act or to respond with not doing anything. Yeah, so I was thinking about an example of not doing anything and uh, someone I came across quite early in my social work practice um, when I was a hospital social worker, I went to see someone who maybe could have benefited from some support from social care. Um, but when I spoke with her and was talking to her about the risks, um, she was an older person and she was talking about how she used to drive fire engines in the wall and didn't feel that she needed any help. She's like, I, I can manage. Yeah, if I can do that, I can do this. And at that time, it was much more important to notice and respond to what was behind that statement than to try to push something, you know, some action onto her. Um, I can't actually remember if I followed up later. Generally, in those sorts of situations, you'd want to go back to it, wouldn't you? Mm. Um, and for me, this idea of not doing anything is, is about stillness, about being still with someone and letting what's happening for them in that moment just happen without interfering with it. And it is a real art form, actually. And like you, it was something that I came across quite early in my profession, actually from my first social work supervisor. I worked in the disability field and many of the children we worked with ex had life limiting conditions. And so grief was really ever present for these families and they sat alongside the kind of physical and mental hardship of the care that that kind of pushed against the rewards and the joy and the love. So there were lots and lots of big, deep emotions. And when people felt overwhelmed they wanted to be able to talk or scream or cry it out you know they they just wanted a safe space to allow that pain to be there but they 
didn't want to be disabled by it or overwhelmed by it themselves. So they needed like an anchor almost. Mm -hmm. And I learned the most important thing was to be a witness rather than a helper because the person didn't actually want help. They wanted a safe space. And the other person just provided an anchor for the turbulence they were experiencing. And what it required you to do was really to project a warm, empathetic, comforting presence by doing nothing except sitting calmly. So not mirroring the distress, mm -hmm. but absorbing it and playing back acceptance. So, so, so really being able to hold and contain that. Um, and that, that's, that's quite hard work actually, mm -hmm. especially if you're a doer. Yeah, I went and had a look at um, research around silence in social work. And generally what you find if you look for articles around silence is that it's seen as a negative thing. It's about not noticing something or not speaking up about something. I found an article in the British Journal of Social Work that talked about silence in a really different way. Um, and it's called Country is Yarning to Me, Worldview, Health and Wellbeing Amongst Australian First Nations People. And it's Marise Terare and Margot Rawsthorne. So it's from 2020 and it talks about yarning as a mode of practice, which is a word I hadn't come across before um, as a kind of indigenous practice of storytelling that involves sound and silence mm. and this deep living using your whole listening, so deep listening using your whole self that allows stories to emerge. And the authors are a First Nations woman and a non-indigenous woman who, who used yarning um, to unpack so in factors around well-being for Australian First Nations people. And there was this um, quote, which was, the contribution within yarning is guided by individual and can consist of loud and silent energy. It can be no conversing to silence and stillness. And it connects to the stories that are in our conscious state, waiting to be picked up and embedded. So the stillness allows the stories to be found. Um, and so the authors are suggesting this is a useful practice for social work because it allows new knowledge to emerge by what they call abandoning a professional fixing framework and enacting cultural humility so mm. what you're saying as well you know not rushing in to be the helper and I've actually you know when I when I read that first of all yarning is is an Australian word it's a very very common word to have a yarn that's what we do um, but I've seen that in practice and I realized that actually I've grown up around it because you know I grew up in Nulamboy in the Northern Territory which is the land of the home of the Yolongnu people and um, my mother had a very dear friend who she would go and visit um, at Yakala which was um, the the place where Aboriginal people were living at that time um, and I won't say her name because she's passed, but um, we would sit under a tree in the sun, but in the shade, of course, and sometimes talk and sometimes eat and sometimes be in silence. And it was not uncomfortable ever. It was so peaceful. And people often looked like they were doing nothing in complete contentment with each other. And it really suited my mum just to go and sit with her dear friend and just be. Mm. 
and they they could be there for ages. And us kids, we'd run off and go to the beach and muck about. And when we'd look back, they would just be there, the women, just sitting together. And they were yarning. That's what they were doing. I think that's um, a really good question for social workers to think about. You know, when have we sat with someone? When have we just been with someone and not been busy? Because um, mm. there, there needs to be, from, you know, from what we're talking about, there needs to be a lot of that time blended in there. That's good. That's good time, isn't it? That's good, valuable time. Yeah, and and I and I don't know that we. I mean, so many social workers talk to me about how agitated they feel even taking time to read, like they're not doing real work because they're doing reading or thinking. So I don't know how comfortable we are with understanding that our presence can be a valuable thing without activity attached to it. So I think there's a, there's a lot here to get our head around, but it's just, you know, like I said, when you read that bit out and you talked about that, I thought, oh, I've seen this. I've actually, I absolutely know what this looks like. Um, and it does feel like there's purpose in it, mm. in the doing nothing. It's a, Yeah. Um, but, you know, so it seems to me that this stillness and silence that we're talking about, is actually more than just listening. And that comes back to that kind of the understanding that we have of listening, which is that people listen with the intent to reply. And Stephen Covey says this in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. And we know that active listening is about understanding first. But there is an urge in social work to act and to have all the answers. And we're managing those time pressures and expectations and tasks that kind of brought us into the encounter in the first place. Mm. Yet when we do nothing, we offer the other person the gift of time. We're not filling the silence or rushing in to prove our expertise. We're deliberately creating space to allow the other person to let their their mind wander around the issue at hand, to kind of feel the emotions in safety and to feel the silence with their own thoughts and um, long pauses between answering each other in conversation often feels like something you have to rush into you have to mm. jump into that pause but they're not always things to be avoided and this is interesting because obviously you know I'm I'm what we would call a high talker so I always have lots to say um but I do understand silence in practice and I understand silence also with my own family so being able to sit with somebody, but I have to do it mindfully. It's not something that happens accidentally for me. I have to go, I'm talking too much, pull myself back, you know. Um, so some of the things that help me is to actually say, I want to really listen to you. So that might it might take me a bit before I answer you if you ask me anything because I'm going to stop and think about it. And it's a bit artificial, but it just helps me remember to keep my mouth closed before I start again. Um, and paraphrasing is also quite helpful because you can check in with the person before you give them the answer. 
and sometimes you don't need to give them an answer. You just need to give them the space. Um, so proper listening for me is a real gift and it's such a skilled piece of work. Um, and it might wear the label of doing nothing, but it's actually a really powerful social work to and human tool. Yeah. I think there's leaving the space in a conversation with silence and then leaving the space in in the activity with stillness is it, there's a lot of parallels aren't there because mm. one of the things that we might be modeling is well, we're leaving space for people to to act themselves but also we might be modeling being okay with not knowing what to do or being okay with not knowing what to say which are things that people have to learn we all have to learn to live with aren't they yeah. to to be uncertain and to wait and that can feel very uncomfortable in social work, I think, because of the way we position ourselves um, and the way perhaps we're positioned um, in the media and in other, you know, other arenas, this idea of us, um, that, that very powerful helper idea. And we talk a lot about activities that matter and ways we can be helpful. Um, so, yeah, once again, it's knowing when to use things, isn't it? And, and, and making that really deliberate and conscious choice about them. Yeah. Yeah. And there's uh, an article, another one that I found. Um, I was looking at the British Journal of Social Work because I was looking at articles about being passive. Uh, generally, that's seen as a poor, you know, bad thing, a negative thing in social work. Uh, but I found an article that pointed to this idea that being more passive or inactive allows empowerment and action from the other person. So I found this article called Reimagining the Resettlement of Refugees by Engaging with an Ethic of Thriving, which is Vincent Baltra-Alua and Williams from 2021. Again, it was in Australia as it happened. And it was talking about the idea that this, there's this dominant um, view of resettlement, which is about refugees are passive. And so we assimilate them, we make, we help them fit in, we make that happen for them. Um, and the authors are arguing that that suffocates thriving because it doesn't privilege the person's lived experience and their dreams and aspirations. Um, whereas the ethic of thriving has this underlying assumption that people have got resounding mm. resilience, skills, abilities and wisdom, and that they need to be reconnecting with dreams and aspirations. So that challenges the authors say this idea that we're professional um, and we're kind of somehow separate from the worker and client and where we have the competence and expertise but sees instead the role as being about relationship um, and allowing the other person's expertise to come through and giving them space essentially and there's a really nice um, expression um, phrase in here which is that it's a call to humility deeply listening to each other and working in relationship um, and paying attention to the wise of practice and the wisdom of many minds. And so the word humility came up in both articles, actually. So that was quite interesting. Um, and linguistically, it's linked to this idea of, of the earth. So it's about being grounded um, and knowing who you are and what you know and don't know and being OK, again, with being open to, to what happens and what might grow in that space. So the real sense of humility allowing growth. Yeah, I love this idea. I just, yeah, and I love, I, I really, 
it, it was heartfelt for me that kind of concept of that um, kind of suffocating helpfulness, you know, um, and that idea that all of our activity can be experienced by other people as as suffocating, not not because that's our intention, but because the pressure that we bring with us yet sucks up all the oxygen, I guess. And um, that, so that idea of making space um, and and moving away as as a as a method of allowing people to move into that space, you know, um, it's fantastic. And I love that idea um, of a movement towards understanding by listening deeply. And this, once again. Um, brings me to a song it's which I'm going to Australian try. episode as it goes. Yeah, it is an Australian episode. I'm going to try really hard not to sing the words, okay, guys, because um, I'm a high talker, but I'm not very tuneful, sadly. But there's a song by a band called Titus, which is T-I-D-D-I-S, and it's a First Nation Aussie band, and it talks about the gift of making space in time. And um, it came out in the 90s, and from when I first heard it, it's always affected me deeply always and over the years there are times in my life where I feel myself over busying or when I'm in sorrow or distress and I'll actually hum this song to myself like I said I'm going to stop myself but I just want to share these words with you Um, the words are come inside into my kitchen rest your feet your weary mind you can settle and I will listen to all the problems that you find. Because in this world in which we live, I have time. I have time to give. And I just think that's just such a beautiful sentiment. Um, And I've been really conscious in my life of not getting so busy that I can't give my friends time. Like of kind of going, no, I could say, no, I can't go here, I can't come there. But actually, it's better that I lay down all this work and that I go and give that person that time to listen to them. Um, And it always gives you something as well. That's the point of it. Um, So it, it seems to me that the key to everything in human interactions that require healing seems to be about the time someone gave you, the listening space they created to let you thrash about and to put it all out there without kind of putting meaning or analysis or creating a to-do list from it. And that to me is what doing nothing means. It, It really is about creating that positive space. I've had an idea of a kind of analogy when you're talking about that, which is, that this idea of being still doesn't mean being kind of frozen, but it's more like being a tree that moves with the wind and sways, but doesn't break. So you're not rushing around, but you are swaying um, and you're allowing mm. the experience and the motion and the energy of the person that you're with to move you, but not to kind of throw you somehow, um, which is akin to the sort of um, best practice advice around bereavement, for example, that you would sit with someone in bereavement I mean you talked about that earlier in the episode didn't you allowing people to work through things in whatever way they need to or not work through them or just be with them just allow that to happen Mm. I like that idea of the tree 
I really like that idea of the tree. I was with a, a young person. I'm going to do the Australian thing again because she's an Australian. Um, and she has developed um, a kind of a motion wheel for landscape architects that helps them understand how trees and plants can allow people to experience emotion. And so when you talked about that kind of the tree moving around and just allowing, you know, allowing the emotions to move it, but not, but not kind of, yeah, send it away. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely thought actually. And it also makes me think about Gladys, uh, one of our podcast guests, because when she came on and we asked her what helpful social work meant to her, she really liked of sitting with a person and letting their worries be present. Um, you know, she's a social worker in practice and she was talking about that as being a really important part of her practice. So even though it can feel really hard um, in the systems we work in, which seem to demand action, um, and the fact that we're a very action-orientated society and we have all sorts of ideas about what it would mean to be still and not all of them are positive, it's already there in practice. You know, um, Gladys already, you know, talking about it. There'll be many other people. And so I think it's about knowing when to do nothing and when to use activity or another form of interaction that's important. And um, at the risk of getting very philosophical here, Jerry. Um, <laughs> It does seem to me that humans have a need of all the types of interactions we can offer in social work. And part of the skill is to be able to be purposeful, but to allow space in that purpose for other things to blossom or for the other person to offer you more or teach you more or give you more than you ever expected. So if we saw social work much more as a kind of exchange of potential, where we could be getting as much from the encounter as the person we were there to help. I put that in a, you know, little quotation marks. Perhaps doing nothing would be a clearer option some of the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, that report that you highlighted about um, refugees trying to resettle really brings that home because the exchange is what they're talking about to me the opportunity yeah. to have an exchange because they think about that as an ethic of thriving for the person but it's the thriving for the social worker as well isn't that no question yeah. uh, and I, th I think it's worth just mentioning while we're talking about this that there are times when you do need to jump in yeah um, so we're not saying hold back and wait for things to unfold when you know you actually need to act um, there is quite a helpful idea in adult social care law about when it's your duty to do something if somebody's actually saying I don't want action um, and essentially you respect the decision um, and um, there's there's a kind of exceptional circumstances where you think actually you know I do need to act and that's when the person um, isn't understanding um, doesn't have the capacity to make that decision about what would be in their best interest at that moment um, and there's a real risk to them so it's about the level of risk and their understanding that you need to weigh up and of course that would be even more a profounder thing for, for a child. Um, so yeah it's really about just being purposeful um, as you say Joe and thinking okay what's 
what's my motivation here? What's my, what am I trying, where am I trying to get to? How do I work through this? Um, what information is available to me? What am I noticing and perceiving? And to make that judgment about whether we wait, whether we sit, whether we leave, whether we act, you know, whether we return, all of those mm. options are open to us. Yeah, it's um, it just comes back to the same thing, which is that social work is a highly skilled profession and one that you you have to, you know, keep practicing and thinking about all the time, which is one of the reasons that I just love doing this podcast, because it's my space to talk with you and think about these concepts um, that don't that I don't always come into contact with. But I've been doing a little bit of reading lately on the idea of compassionate acceptance of ourselves. And I came across this little story and it's from the website positivepsychology.com. Um, and it's about acceptance and commitment therapy and it's about sailing. And this metaphor uses the setting of a small sailboat with you as a sailor. And occasionally waves send water over the side and into the boat and they're causing you the inconvenience of wet feet. Now the boat includes a baler to bail out this water and you know how to use it. So one day when a particularly big wave breaks over the side and leaves water in your boat, you start bailing. And you might start bailing calmly or mindfully, but eventually you might find yourself bailing desperately or wildly to try and get rid of all this water. And while you've been bailing, have you noticed what's happened to your boat? Where's it headed? Where is it drifted to? And would it be fair to say that you've been bailing more than sailing? And now take a closer look at your bailer and you can see it's really a sieve full of holes. What would you do? The implicit purpose of bailing water here is probably to get your boat back on track once you get rid of once you rid the boat of water. But if your tool's not suited to the task, you'll find yourself struggling to get rid of any water, let alone guide your boat. So the question is, would you rather be on a boat that has only a little water in the bottom but is drifting without direction? or on a boat that may have quite a bit of water in the bottom, but is headed in the direction you wish to go. And this can kind of help us really realise two things. Sometimes the way we deal with our problematic thoughts and feelings are tools like the baler and the sieve, and some are better than others. So that comes back to that idea we have of sometimes doing nothing is right and sometimes action is right. And the other thing here, which I, th I think is, was critical for me, was sometimes working desperately to avoid wet feet or other painful or uncomfortable feelings gets us so off track that it blocks us being able to reach our goals. So the wave, the water's not the problem anymore. It's the overactivity. And I think this is what I've been trying to go towards when I think about doing nothing it's about being able to sit with people in their pain and, and accept it's part of their life and honour it rather than spend so much time focusing on trying to fix it that it becomes the purpose and the activity within itself. So so that idea that sometimes it's um, okay to let a little bit of water lap around your feet and do nothing. Mm. 